Turn with me tonight in your Bible to Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. And we want to read together the first eleven verses. Second Peter chapter one. Let's hear the word of God. Turning to the place, we do welcome you to the Lord's house this evening. We do thank you for coming. And of course, we're conscious that from this morning, our numbers are well depleted. And um, for those who are absent, they'll probably be thankful that I'm not going to attempt to preach on the subject of empty seats. But who will some Sunday morning deal with that very, very subject? Because I think we need to underscore the importance of church attendance. And if you think of the importance of school attendance and the record of the role. And um, there's a boy in this church who will not be named. He knows who he is. And he has 14 years full attendance of a record at school. Seven years at the primary and seven years at the secondary and he will no doubt in time get a proper reward uh, from the education board but I was thinking about attendance and the record of attendance and of course some of you are very very faithful in attendance and if you're not available or able to come for what reason or another you let me know and that's always important and I appreciate that so much and some of you of course when you're not here and I don't know uh, your circumstances and I try to contact you and um, I, I, I do that deliberately simply because I, I feel if there's something wrong in a pastoral sense then you may need help and uh, I want to be available and want to be a faithful pastor to you um, but I'm not going to preach in empty seats tonight you'll really be glad but I will preach it on a Sunday morning because I think that those that uh, who, who could be here, should be here and are not here uh, need to hear what the Word of God has to say about this subject. But that's for another time. Let's read Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, 
Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we'll end the reading there at verse 11. I pray that God will stamp his own approval and blessing this reading of his own inerrant, infallible word. Now my text this evening is taken from Second Peter chapter 1 and the verse 1. And I want us to consider the theme, the preciousness of faith. So I've given you the text and I've given you the theme. There are 72 references in the Bible to the word precious. And of course the Bible reveals to us the things that are most precious to God. And some weeks ago we thought about the precious thoughts of God toward his people from Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. And of course, if we visited other portions of scripture like 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1, we would discover that it's written and the word of God was precious in those days. And of course, what a tremendous treasure the Word of God is. And here we are tonight, and we're thankful that we have an English Bible, that we have a most faithful and reliable translation of the Scriptures in our English language, the authorised version. And in reality, the English Bible that we have is a sort of a, an offshoot of what Martin Luther did in translating the Bible from Greek and, and Hebrew into the German language. Did you know that in Peter, first and second Peter, there are five precious things that are mentioned. In first Peter chapter one and verse seven, it talks about that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold. Did you ever think about trials being precious? And then of course in verse 19 of chapter one, it talks about but with the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is precious, most valuable, highly esteemed in the sight of God. And then also in First uh, Peter in chapter 2 and verse 7, Christ is precious. Here's the third thing that's mentioned. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. And then of course in Second Peter chapter 1 in verse 1, you've got precious faith that's mentioned. And in the verse 4, you have got precious promises that are mentioned. And these are just some of the things, of course, that the Bible reveals to us that are precious to God. And tonight, we just want to think about the preciousness of faith. So that's what we're going to study and consider this evening. Our faith is described as precious. Listen to the word. Simon Peter, a servant, he was a, a, a slave, the word is doulos, and an apostle, that means a sent one, of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to learn five things tonight about the preciousness of faith. I want you to think about 
the obtaining of precious faith. If you look at the words, to them that have obtained like precious faith. You see, true faith is an indispensable element in the salvation of any sinner. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. True faith is, of course, the gift of God. And faith is merely the instrumental cause of our justification. A true faith, therefore, is indispensable to salvation. You cannot be saved apart from and without <coughs> faith. Did you know tonight you can't serve God acceptably without true faith? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and is rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And therefore, you not only can't be saved apart from him without faith, but you can't serve God without uh, true faith. And you also can't supplicate God in prayer without believing that God is, without coming to God and calling on him. And of course, accepting the premise that he's a, a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. Now, I stress that for this reason. There are those today who have loads of strange ideas and strange notions about faith. There are those who are liberals and modernists who maintain that and believe that it's a natural thing for men and women to possess faith. That, that faith is as natural as coming in and sitting in the chair and believing the chair will hold you. It's as natural as getting into a car and starting the engine up with the key and having faith to believe that it's not going to blow up. Or, or it's as natural as putting out a, a note to the milkman to say I want um, four cartons of milk rather than two uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, and you see the liberals and, uh, and, and modernists, they latch on to this thing that we call natural faith, something that is common to all men in the things that we do. And they say, well, natural faith, well, well, that's what it is. It's just the same uh, as saving faith. And I want to tell you that natural faith, the faith to sit in the chair, start a car, put a note out for the milkman, is not the same and has nothing really to do with true saving faith. Let me tell you something else. Faith is more than merely accepting a creedal statement. Oh, I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith. Oh, I believe the Shorter Catechism. I, I believe in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And I want to tell you, those are very, very good creedal statements. And true faith, of course, includes and involves giving mental assent to a set of truthful propositions as revealed in our creedal statements and in the word of God. But again, I tell you that faith is more than that. Now, now notice this word, obtained. What's in view? Well, what does that mean? It's a reference to the possession of a faith in all of God's people. Look at what he says. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us. All of God's people, the apostle says, including himself, 
have all possessed the same quality of faith. We could talk of the faith of all true believers in all ages, a faith of the same kind, that unites us to the same Savior, that brings to us the same privileges and the same glorious rewards. Now, surely that's comforting. It's comforting to someone who's here tonight and may think, well, you know, my faith at times is weak and I have to pray, Lord, increase my faith or pray, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And I want to tell you, even though you have weak faith, and faith is a grain of mustard seed in the sight of God, it is no long, no, no, no more less precious than, than the warm, strong-hearted faith of the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul. Now that ought to be comforting, because the very same quality of faith that the Apostle Peter had, and the Apostle Paul had, and the Apostle John had, those of us in Christ, by the gift of God, have possessed or are possessed by the same quality of faith. The obtaining of precious faith. I want you to think secondly of the origin of precious faith. You see, this faith that Peter's talking about has been freely given and freely bestowed as a gift. It doesn't grow in man's hearts by nature. Man doesn't inherently possess it. It's called precious because it is a divine gift it comes from God. It is given and bestowed freely. It's, it's, it's a possession that comes outside of us. Nobody is born a believer. No, nobody's born a Christian. And uh, it's maybe not even right to talk about, well, I was born into a Christian country. Because there is no such place as, as a Christian country. Or even born into a Christian family. Because grace doesn't run in families. This is not a principle that's bestowed via education and learning. This is not a principle that's procured because you follow a good example, even the example of the Lord Jesus. Do you know this night that the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 2, all men have not faith. In other words, all men have not received or been possessed by this principle of true faith. In Titus chapter 1 verse 1 and 2. It talks about the faith of God's elect. And, and that's tremendous. This faith is a product of the Holy Ghost. It's given and bestowed on everyone who's born again of the Spirit. It's therefore implanted by God. How do men come to believe? Acts 18.27 gives us the answer. Believed through grace. 
You see, the grace of God, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God to uh, the ill-deserving and hell-deserving led them to believe and trust in Christ. And that's the testimony of every true believer. If we ask believers, where did you get your faith from? Then the, the answer is, it has come as a gift of God. It was implanted in me in the new birth. And I have believed in Christ through the grace of God. And it's not something naturally inherent in me. Because the Bible says all men have not faith. So that's the second thing, the origin of precious faith. And there's another reason why it's precious. I want you to think thirdly of the object of this precious faith. If you look at our text, it says, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see, you will accept with me tonight this fact that true salvation is received by faith. But faith in what? Faith in who? What does true faith lay hold of? Who does true faith look to? And you know, the answers unfolded here in these words, through the righteousness of God our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Because true faith, now listen to me carefully, has a single object. If you look at these words, through the righteousness of God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, you'd be tempted to think, well, there's two people here in the Godhead being referred to. The righteousness of God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. But there's a little rule that we were taught in college that was underscored repeatedly by Dr. Alan Kearns, the Granville Sharp rule that I not go into for you don't need to know all the ins and outs of it. But if you've got a margin in your authorised Bible, it tells us there that the Greek rendering is of our God and saviour in other words there's one person in view doesn't the bible tell us in matthew 11 or mark 11 rather have faith in god that that is in the living and the true god there's not a plurality of gods the church of rome teaches the adherence to have faith in the virgin mary as a co-mediatrix as co-redemptrix as the, the queen of heaven and they tell the faithful go to her and ask Mary to pray for you and ask Mary that to, to intercede in your behalf before her son they, they tell the faithful to have faith in Gabriel or Michael or one of the other angels or a host of saints remember Martin Luther and we learned this in Reformation Week Truth for Our Times that Martin Luther called in St. Anne in the midst of the storm. St. Anne, save me. Well, why didn't he call in God? Why didn't he call in the Lord Jesus? Well, here's the answer. He was taught to pray to St. Anne when in trouble. St. Anne was supposedly the patron saint of the miners. And his dad taught him, when you're in trouble, son, you pray to St. Anne and she'll help you. And of course, Rome has a whole list of individuals who supposedly help the faithful. But true faith is a single object. And it's faith in God. 
as the living and the true God. And as I've said, the rendering is through the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The margin brings into view one person, the God-man. And to him we look. And to him we, we, we lay hold of for salvation. True faith is a simple object. Not only a single object, a simple object. Doesn't the Bible say, look unto me and be ye saved? All ye ends of the earth, Isaiah 45 and 22. And I love to tell the story. Spurgeon, as a young man, 16, in the midst of a snowstorm, who'd set off to go to church, decided to go into a little Wesleyan chapel there, rather than the church he was intended to go to because of the snow. And the preacher hadn't turned up. And there was a layman preaching. And he took that as his text, Isaiah 45 and 22. And he kept repeating the words, because that was all he knew. Look unto me and be saved. And he said, young man, you look miserable. And I advise you from this text, the Bible says, look unto me and be saved. And it was through that very text that young Spurgeon at 16 was gloriously saved. You see, it was a look of faith. Remember in... The night that Christ met Nicodemus, or Nicodemus met Christ, in John chapter 3, verse 14, the uh, Lord Jesus brought the conversation round to an historical incident that took place in the lives of the children of Israel. They had sinned against God, and God had sent fiery serpents into the camp. Many were dying. Many had already died. And what did the Lord Jesus do? He took that historical illustration, because remember the cure? The cure was for Moses to get... Uh, a pole and put a serpent of brass in the pole and say to the people when you look to the serpent of brass then you'll be healed from this uh, plague of fiery serpents and this poison that should work in your body and the bible tells us here and as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life they were not told to look to the pole to look to the brazen serpent. The brazen serpent stands for judgment. We're not to look to the wood of the cross, but to the work of the cross. And whosoever believes in that work, the work offered by the Lord Jesus, doesn't the Bible tell us in Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 3 and 16, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there's no mention of a payment. There's no mention of a purgatory. No mention of a pilgrimage. No mention of a practice. Pray or fast or inflict yourself with pain. Do you know that the Reverend George Whitfield, before he was converted, prayed and fasted himself. In fact, he testified. He prayed and fasted so much that he, he felt he was at the, the point of death. Until God came and God opened his eyes and showed to him that payment wasn't necessary. Purgatory was an invention of, of the devil. Pilgrimages was out and he didn't need to practice by prayer and inflict himself with pain or fasting. All he had to do was look by faith to the cross work of Christ. All he had to do was call on the Lord, save me. All he had to do was believe, which means to trust and adhere to and rely on. Faith. True faith is a simple object. But true faith is also a sacrificial object. 
You see, it mentions here in the text, through the righteousness of God, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And you see, true faith lays hold of Christ's merit. The merit is in Christ in his person and work, his sinless life and his atoning death. You see, true faith is not a meritorious cause. True faith is merely the instrument upon which we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. The merit is in Christ. And it's not my faith that saves me. It's Christ that saves me. Faith merely lays hold of him. It's Christ's person and work that gives value to true faith. You see, we're told today, but, but I've got my faith, Mr. McLaughlin, or, or I'm a woman of faith, or a man of faith. But, but I want to ask the question, faith in what? Faith in the Pope and his fallibility? Faith in the church that will save? Faith in a lie? Faith in a feeling? Faith in, in, in a work, in, in your doings. No, faith in the righteousness of God our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, let me make a statement tonight. You see, if Jesus Christ is not God manifest in the flesh, then he cannot be your, you or mine Saviour. See, many want to accept Christ. They'll say, well, he's a prophet. Yes, we'll accept him as a priest. Yes, we'll even accept him as a king. He's a good man, a gracious man, gifted man, godly man. But, but not the God man. That, that's a bit far. No, 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 we can't, can't accept that. I want to tell you, such talking like that is the belief of the Unitarians. The Unitarians not only deny the, the blood atonement of Christ, but they deny the very... Deity of Jesus Christ and all the major cults. You can trace one thing that's common to them. They all deny the essential deity of Christ. And the sad thing is, they're leading their followers to hell. Because a saviour who is not God in the flesh cannot be a saviour. 1 Timothy 3 and 16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And as we trust in the merits of Christ, we're, we're trusting in a promised Savior. He was promised before the world began. He was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first gospel promise, the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is Christ, according to the book of Galatians. Not seeds, as in many, but seed, as in one. And that seed is Christ. We're also trusting in a propitious Savior. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, we read, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And that's a tremendous text of scripture. We haven't time to open it up, but that word propitiation means that he, he, he turned away the wrath of God. He, he appeased the wrath of God by a sinless life, by, by earning righteousness for his people, and also by his blood shedding and sacrificial death. So, so we trust in a 
propitious saviour. A saviour who turned away the wrath of God for us. We trust in a perfect saviour. He was sinless. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. That's, that's why the sinless life of Christ is an important element in the teaching of the Bible concerning his person and work. If he hadn't have been sinless, then he would never have been a perfect sacrifice. Then he wouldn't have been a perfect substitute. You see, it's all about what Christ has done. A crucified Christ. A Christ who died and shed his blood. A, 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 a living Christ. A Christ who's rose again bodily from the dead. An exalted Christ who's back at God's right hand. A, a, a coming Christ. See, see, it's the whole Christ. You, you can't divide him up. It's all about what Christ has done. Is it any wonder the hymn writer said in our hymn book in hymn 96... Not all the blood of beasts and Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscious peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And it was to him, to Christ, gave all the prophets of the Old Testament witness. And we're told in John chapter 6 and verse 29, And this is the work of God, that ye believe on Jesus Christ, whom God have sent. Not his teaching, not merely his example, but believe in his merits, the merits of his person and work. It's that which gives faith its value. I want you to think not only of the object of precious faith, but I want you to think, fourthly, of the obedience of precious faith. You see, the, the Bible tells us that not all men have faith. And listen to what Hebrews says. But unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. Listen to these words. Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Doesn't the Bible talk about a coming day when God will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel? You see, Thousands are privileged to hear the gospel. And that is a great privilege. And you young people should thank God for that privilege. You should thank God that mum and dad brings you to a Bible-believing gospel church. Because there's many churches in the land where the, the gospel is not preached. But there's many who hear the gospel and they have that privilege. And of course, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But even those who hear the word of God, it has no effect upon them. Why? Because it's not mixed with faith. And what is saving faith? It's an act of God's good favor towards us. Listen to what our catechism says. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. It's a seeing of Christ. It's a looking to him. It's a receiving him. It's a resting on him. It's a believing on Christ. And the word believe, of course, means to trust in, adhere to, and rely on his present continuous tense. Now, then let me press that home. Has there been a time in your life when you have obtained this like precious faith? And you've got the same quality of faith, just like the apostles, John and Peter and all the rest. 
and you realize the origin of this faith that I've now been a possessor of has come as a gift of God's grace to me through the work of the Spirit. And the object of my faith is Christ alone, a single, simple, yet substitutionary object. And I'm one of those ones who've obeyed the call of the gospel to repent and believe. Is that true of you tonight? Think again of those words. That day. That day for which all other days were made. When we read that God will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. The good news calls you to repent and believe. Acknowledge your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ alone. One final thing. I want you to think about the operation of precious faith. Because true faith, of course, is never really alone. And true faith leads on to what we call works of righteousness. Now, we're not saved by these works of righteousness. These works of righteousness are merely the fruit. If you link it up, uh, go back to Peter there, uh, and he says in um, chapter uh, 1 again, and in the verse 5, he talks there about adding to your faith. He says, and besides this, giving all diligence, that means make every effort, add to your faith. And he mentions a, a number of things, and I encourage you to read that, and perhaps study it for yourself. But you see, True faith is really the root of holiness implanted in the soul. And true faith always produces fruit. And true faith produces fruit in the soul. And if there's no fruit, then we have to say there's no root of faith. And what does true faith produce in the soul? It produces many things. And let me just finish with this uh, one verse of scripture. Over there in Romans chapter 15 and in the verse um, 13 uh, the Apostle Paul uh, makes this tremendous statement. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Notice the words joy and peace in believing. And what is joy and peace? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Joy and peace in believing. Do, do you see the connection there? True faith produces peace in the soul. You're going to have peace with God tonight. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but true faith enables you to experience the peace of God. And certainly when trials come and trouble descends and your wee world is shaken upside down, how are you going to cope? Well, will the true faith that you have in Christ, this principle that's implanted within you, that you're a possessor of, this true faith produces the peace, not only with God, but of God. As the apostle says, and the peace of God shall keep or garrison your hearts and minds through faith, which is in Christ. You see the connection there. Of course, the Lord Jesus is our peace. He has made peace by the blood of the cross. It's not a false peace. This is something that's real and something that's true, especially in the days of trial and trouble. And notice also, he mentions joy. 
True faith produces joy. I wonder how Paul and Silas, when they got the beating by the Philippian jailer and were put into the inner prison and their feet were put into the stocks and their, their bodies are sore, their bones are sore, that they're maybe bleeding and it's at midnight and there they are and what are they doing? They're not having a pity party. They're singing. They're praying. The Bible tells us they prayed and sang praises to God. How could they do that? Here's the answer. The true faith that was in them produced the spirit of joy. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And the true faith not only produces these fruits, but produces other fruits. And that's what Peter is mentioning here. He talks about virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. And of course, that's a reference to love. And this is what he says, and we'll finish. If these things be in you and abound, they shall make you, shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of what? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And surely that's at the heart of the operation of precious faith. And for these five reasons, the obtaining, the origin, the object, the obedience, and the operation, then the faith that is within us is most precious indeed. Consider tonight the preciousness of faith. May the Lord bless these few thoughts to you. I trust they'll be helpful and they'll be beneficial in days to come.